All right. Well, uh, as always, I have the privilege of bringing us God's word. Um, our, our passage today comes from the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. Um, you'll see it on the screen behind me, but if you want to follow along on your phone or um, you have a physical Bible, uh, Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28, I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, the NIV. This is the reading of God's word. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Amen. Um, if you've been with us, we are in a series through the book of Ruth, and you might be asking why then I just read a passage from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, but you know that uh, if you followed along, uh, you know that uh, we're doing something different for this series where uh, we're, we'll look at one chapter in Ruth, and then the next week we'll look at a New Testament text that shares similar themes or ideas. And um, the idea behind that is really reminding our congregation that the Bible is not just a collection of isolated stories, but it's actually one long, continuous story about God and his work of redemption in the world. If you were with us on Easter Sunday, um, I talked about, I, I gave us that story from the Old Testament uh, all the way to the New Testament. And I think unless we start to grasp this, um, the Bible won't make sense. But if we start to see the Bible as one long continuous story, um, you know, all of our community groups are on this two-week cycle as well. Uh, I really think the scripture will come alive for us. And so that's what we want to do. So a few weeks ago, we looked at Ruth chapter 2. Uh, if you're not caught up with the sermon series or joining for the first time, definitely recommend uh, go back and listen to it on our podcast, um, on the website, or on our YouTube page. Um, but just to give us a quick recap of where we are in the book so far, at the end of Ruth chapter 1, you have two women whose lives have been completely turned upside down. Okay, their lives are just shattered. Uh, you have uh, an Israelite widow, Naomi, and her Moabite uh, daughter-in-law, Ruth. Um, all the men in their life, lives have died, and here they are, uh, all they have are each other, and they're living in this extremely patriarchal society where women have no power, authority, or privilege whatsoever, okay? But in Ruth chapter two, we see things start to look up, because uh, Ruth finds herself in the field of a wealthy Israelite landowner, Boaz, uh, who just happens to be the one man who can turn things around for Ruth and her mother-in-law. And so Ruth, uh, if you remember, takes this huge leap of faith and makes an extremely bold request that would have been unthinkable for a woman in that time. Uh, she asks Boaz to not only let her glean in his field, and we talked about this, that gleaning uh, was like a public display of your poverty. Gleaning was Israel. 
Israel's welfare system. There was so much shame and risk uh, that came from gleaning in and of itself. But not only does she ask Boaz uh, if she can glean in his field, but she, she asks him if she can collect the quality grains. Okay, so, um, I mean, this is a very bold request. Um, Ruth is in no position to be able to ask Boaz to do this. We have to understand that Boaz and Ruth are on completely opposite ends of the social hierarchy. You have Boaz, who's an Israelite. He's wealthy, uh, good reputation in the community. And then you have Ruth, who's a widow in a world where widows are the most vulnerable people in society. And not only is she a widow, she's a Moabite widow. So she's basically an undocumented immigrant living in enemy territory. She has no business asking Boaz for a favor, and yet this is what she does. And by the middle of chapter 2, not only has Ruth been given the green light to glean in Boaz's field, but she's sitting at Boaz's table having a meal with him. Okay, and... and because we're living in 2022 in Los Angeles, it's hard for us to sometimes imagine ourselves in the text, but we can't overstate just how scandalous this encounter is, okay? Well, given that, I'm sure you can understand why I chose the passage I did for today, because the premise in Matthew 15 is very similar. In Matthew 15, we read the story of a Canaanite woman who has no business whatsoever approaching a Jewish rabbi, and we watch her cross every social, cultural, religious boundary imaginable to make an extremely bold request. And in both scenes, you have these women who basically go out of their way to do something pretty wild for the sake of someone they love. For Ruth, it's for her mother-in-law, Naomi, and for this Canaanite woman, it's for her daughter, who is demon-possessed and apparently is suffering terribly. Now, the glaring difference between these two accounts um, is actually that Boaz's response seems a lot nicer than Jesus's, okay? Like, this is a really difficult passage to preach, um, you know, because, like, when you read this passage, there's no way around the fact that Jesus just sounds like an angry person. He looks extremely mean. Right? Um, our typical picture of Jesus up to this point is that he's this loving shepherd who, who, who loves everybody, cares for everyone, especially those who are in need. He never gets annoyed by anyone. But then you get a passage like this. Um, I like to think of this as the Will Smith moment of Matthew 15, okay, where like it really feels like, you know, this nice guy has been pushed to his ultimate limits. Um, and this woman basically gets the brunt of, of Jesus' anger and his exhaustion, right? Um, I've read like six different commentaries on this, and really there's no way around. Like nobody can really explain why Jesus sounds so dismissive and so insensitive, maybe even insulting. Um, but this is my best attempt, so please, uh, I'm going to ask for your grace. This is my best attempt to kind of synthesize uh, all the different um, scholarship out there to try to interpret this passage to see what this passage might mean for us. Okay, so you have this woman who is inconsolable, right? And it's understandable because her daughter is suffering, Right? And she's heard that Jesus is in town, and, and she's heard about this Jesus. Um, he's kind of building a reputation, and he's been going around healing the sick, casting out demons. So, of course, I mean, she, I mean she's willing to do anything. Right? And so she goes up to Jesus knowing she probably shouldn't go up to Jesus, but she begs him to help her. And the first thing we read in verse 23 is that Jesus didn't answer a word. He's silent. 
okay? And you're, you're like, okay. As you're reading this, you're like, okay, let's give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. You know, maybe he's just thinking. Um, but then it's silent, and then it's only after the, Jesus, after the disciples tell Jesus to send this woman away because she's crying so much that Jesus finally responds, and he doesn't even respond to her. He responds to them, right? So he's like responding to her but ignoring her at the same time, okay? So at this point, if you're reading this, you know, you're kind of like um, uh, Lupita Nyong'o, right? You know, in that Will Smith moment when you're like, oh, wow, this is for real, Right? Jesus is actually, did he really say that? Right? This is, he's, kind of, he's kind of being mean. But you're like, ah, but it's still Jesus. You know, give him the benefit of the doubt. And then we read that the woman literally falls on her knees in front of Jesus and asks him again, Lord, help me. And now you're like, okay, come on, Jesus. We're going to need you to do your thing. And then Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Okay, and at this point, you're like, bring the PR team in because this is a bad look for Jesus. You know, you just called this poor mother who just wants to save her daughter, you just called her a dog. And if that sounds mean to you, it would have been much meaner in that context because, I mean, you and I, we live in L.A., we live in a dog city, right, where we treat our dogs better than humans, right? Um, I remember being at a dog park and... You know, there was this lady with a dog, super sweet. She was like, you're such a good boy, you know, like, you know, doing that thing. Her daughter could not have been older than seven or eight, comes to her and is like, mommy, are we going to go home? And she's like, get back in the car, <laughs> right? And I mean, this is, I mean, this is how we treat dogs and humans in L.A., right? But in this context, it's even worse because back then dogs were seen as unclean animals, they were seen as scavengers who were to be kept outside of the city. And throughout the Bible, any time you see a reference to dog, it usually carries a negative connotation. In Philippians 3, Paul says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, right? And in Revelation 22, the word dog is used to describe everyone who will be cast outside of the city of God. And so Jesus calling this woman a dog is a pretty big deal. And so at the very least, any time Jesus says or does something that, doesn't, that seems so out of character for him, we kind of have to pay close attention to it, all right? Now, all the details of this passage are really important because they give us clues as to what this passage means. The first thing we read in verse 21 is, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Leaving that place. Where is he coming from? Where's that place? Well, in the passage right before this, you have this big confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes, okay? For those of you who don't know, the Pharisees and the scribes were the most respected religious leaders of that day, right? And they all came all the way from Jerusalem to call out Jesus uh, because the disciples weren't washing their hands, okay? And it's not because, uh, you know, the Pharisees were super concerned about personal hygiene. It's because at that time, the washing of hands was a ceremonial cleansing ritual. It's something these religious leaders had added to the law of God, right? Um, as I've gotten older, um, I, I know that many of you have also grown up in the Korean church. I grew up in the Korean church. And the older I get, the more I realize that some of the things that were taught to me as being biblical were actually not biblical. They were cultural, right? Like um, I grew up in a Korean church where I was told that like, Tattoos were the mark of the beast, 
right? Um, or like wine was the devil's juice or something, right? And, and they always said it's in the Bible. I just never, I just like, I just uh, believed them, right? I never, I never looked it up for myself. And there are all these things, even back then, that the religious leaders were doing to add to the law, right? To add tradition and culture to the law of God. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you hypocrites, Right? He says, here you are with your performative rituals that make you seem holier than everyone else when really you don't have a clue as to what God actually desires. And Jesus quotes from Isaiah saying, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And in that same passage, the disciples go over to Jesus and they're like, bro, calm down. You're offending them. Right? They, they, I mean, they don't say bro, but they say, like, you're offending them. And Jesus says, I don't care. He said, they're blind guides. And when the blind lead the blind, both are going to fall into a pit. Okay? So this is the context of this encounter. You have a group of the most devout committed religious leaders. These are your every week churchgoers. These are your community group leaders, your pastors, your most committed volunteers. And Jesus says, your hearts are far from me and they're offended. And let's be honest, we would be offended too. Imagine you dedicate your entire life to the study of scripture. You memorize the Torah and you have this rabbi, you followed all the rules and this rabbi comes along and he says, your hearts are far from God. Who wouldn't be offended? And it begs the question, if these teachers of the law who did everything the right way are still far from God, what hope do people like you and I have? And that's the big question hanging in the middle of Mark chapter 15. So there's a tension that's growing as we come to this passage. Well, interestingly, where Jesus decides to rest after this really intense confrontation with the Pharisees is the region of Tyre and Sidon, okay? And this is the last place you would expect Jesus to go because this is Gentile territory. And why this is noteworthy is that back in Matthew 10, when Jesus sends out the 12 for the first time, he sends them out with very specific instructions to avoid Gentile lands and to go first to the lost sheep of Israel, Right? Meaning Jesus is saying, there's an order to this. I have a plan. And we see that plan all throughout the Bible. In Acts 1, when Jesus ascends to heaven and he commissions the first church, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. In Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. It's for everyone, but first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. There's an order to God's story. If you were with us here on Easter, I talked about this, right? God could have executed his plan of redemption in any way he wanted, but he chose to do it through a specific group of people, through Israel, who would be called to be his ambassadors and representatives to mediate God's love and presence to the entire world, right? There was an order, right? And, and here, it's significant, right, that Jesus comes from the line of David, the great Israelite king, right? We cannot separate Jesus from his heritage. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. And unless we grasp this, 
we will end up turning Jesus into like that Caucasian guy who looks like Fabio, right? Because, I mean, we cannot separate the fact that Jesus was a Jew. And we need to understand that you and I, this wasn't our story. We are Gentiles grafted into the story God has been writing since America, since our lives were even an idea. Okay, and so we have to get this to understand why this passage is so huge because Jesus is in a place he shouldn't be talking to a woman he shouldn't be talking to. And usually anytime that happens in the Gospels, that means the kingdom of God is about to break in. Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus and the bleeding woman, Jesus and the woman with the alabaster jar. Anytime we see Jesus talking to a woman he probably shouldn't be talking to according to the cultural, social norms of that day, we know the kingdom of God is about to break in. And there's a subtle detail in Matthew's account of this encounter that doesn't show up in Mark's account. And in Mark's account, this woman is just referred to as a Greek. That's kind of a general word to describe a Gentile woman. But here in Matthew's account, which is written predominantly to a Jewish audience, the woman is described as a Canaanite. Okay, that's important, okay? And to give you some history, not only are the Canaanites a Gentile people, but they are the worst of Israel's enemies that once occupied the land that God promised to them. You can't talk about Israel's story without talking about the historic hostility that existed between the Israelites and the Canaanites. A few weeks ago, I talked about the movie Pachinko. Uh, again, highly recommend it. Um, not, not the movie, the show. Pachinko, highly recommend it. If you haven't read the book, would definitely uh, recommend reading the book as well. But one thing you realize as you watch this, because this show spans four generations, is that you realize how much the Japanese colonization of Korea, like, affects every generation. It's just woven into the story of Korea. It's woven into the Korean psyche. And even long after the Japanese colonization is over, it's still affecting the way Koreans move and think about the world. Well, in the same way, you have to understand that here we have a Jewish man the king of the Jews, no less, pitted next to a woman who represents Israel's most persistent and insidious enemies. We can't get past just how scandalous this encounter is. And this woman is very aware of this dynamic. She knows that she's in no position to approach Jesus, right? Notice how she addresses him. She says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. She addresses him in a way that highlights Jesus' Jewishness. Lord, son of David. She knows she has no standing socially or culturally to approach Jesus. She has no credentials on which she can stand on. Well, why does she do it then? Why else would she do it? She's a mom. And moms do crazy things for their kids. Parents do crazy things and act out of character for their kids. You know, I have kind of like a shameful story as a parent. I was at a park um, with my kids, and I was, um, <laughs> and Avery was like, my daughter Avery, who's six, um, was at the playground um, playing by herself, and this group, this group of boys um, comes over, and, you know, like, I'm like watching this from a distance, and the boy says to her, like, oh, what's your name? And she's like, Avery. 
He's like, ew, that's a boy's name, right? And I heard that, you know, so obviously I had to walk over. And people who know me, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nine on the Enneagram, extremely non-confrontational. I don't like causing trouble. I mean, this boy was like eight or nine, okay? So I had some, like I had some girth on him, right? And then I, um, and I walk up to him and like I actually, I, I, I forgot what his, what his name was, right? But I, but uh, I was like, what's your name? And it was funny because it, it, also, it happened to also be like a unisex name that could both but go both ways, right? And he says his name, and I was like, ew, that's a girl's name, <laughs> right? And, and, this, and this was like, like two months ago. <laughs> so like, I'm pretty ashamed of that, right? I was really hoping like his parents wouldn't say like, aren't you a pastor, right? Um, but anyways, parents go like do crazy things when it comes to their kids. That's the point, okay? And, and, and here, this woman crosses every, like, social, cultural, custom boundary, and she just falls at Jesus' feet, and she's like, I know this isn't allowed, but have mercy on me. Save my daughter. And you know what she gets in response from Jesus? Silence. Now, let me pause and address like a huge misgiving we have about God that this text addresses. And it's that God's silence indicates his absence. I think many of us feel that, right? That when God is silent, it must mean he's absent. And see, when you read this, you see that the disciples, they want quick fixes, right? Because Jesus is silent and they're, they're getting antsy. They're watching Jesus. They're getting antsy, so immediately it says they urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. They can't stand the silence, so they need to fill the silence and tell Jesus to do something. Translation, can you just give this woman what she wants so we can get rid of her? Because she's annoying. And that's what so many of us want from God, isn't it? We want quick fixes. We can't stand his silence. There's a problem in our lives and we want God to fix it right away. We're having an issue with a friend and we're like, God, this is really taking up too much of my emotional bandwidth. Can you just do something about this now? Can you do something about my job situation? I've been waiting for seven, eight months. God, are you there? And sometimes when God doesn't answer us on our timeline, we lose our minds. We think God is gone. We think prayer is meaningless. We stop seeking God, not realizing that maybe the silence is intentional. And let me give us three specific things that I think Jesus' silence does here in this specific passage. Number one, the silence honors the messiness of the relationship between Israelites and Canaanites. Okay, what do I mean by that? Could Jesus he have healed this, like this woman's daughter immediately? Absolutely. Could it have been a quick and easy transaction? Absolutely. Could he have done it after the first request? Absolutely. But a quick and easy transaction minimizes the historic hostility between these uh, two groups of people. And it also cheapens the reconciliation that Jesus desires to bring. Okay, imagine you have two friends who used to be super close, but it had a massive falling out. They haven't spoken in years. And imagine they get together, and all of a sudden, both of them can just somehow be back to normal in an instant. That's not reconciliation. 
that's faking it, okay? We all know that true, genuine reconciliation, especially when there's been something that's been severed that deeply, takes time. There's a process, and that process can be uncomfortable, and that process can in involve silence. You know, oftentimes when we, when we experience like a really serious breakup, right, um, our natural inclination is to want to move on real quick because we don't like wallowing, right? We don't like staying in that uncomfortable space. But you see, just to move on is to dishonor the weight of that relationship, okay? So first, the silence honors the messiness of the relationship between Israelites and Canaanites. The second thing Jesus' silence does is that it keeps the woman pushing. It grows her desperation. You see as you read through this passage that the woman becomes more desperate and more desperate as the passage goes on because, and, and you know, you're asking, maybe you're asking, why would Jesus do that? Because desperate people cling more tightly. Desperate people cling more tightly. Could it be that what Jesus is doing here is not pushing the woman away, but drawing her in closer? You see, Jesus' desire is not to just give us what we want all the time. Jesus' desire is to have a relationship with us, and that often involves waiting. Think about the people Jesus says will inherit the kingdom. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the persecuted, those who hunger and thirst, children, beggars, lepers. You know what the one thing all these people have in common? They're desperate and they're hyper aware of their need. They know that they need a savior. Think about the moments in your life when you prayed the hardest, when you sought God the hardest. I guarantee you it wasn't when you were killing it at work. It wasn't when you were killing it in life. It was when you felt like your world was imploding. It felt like when it felt like everything around you was unraveling, when your relationships were standing on shaky ground, desperate people understand that they can't save themselves, and this is what Jesus wants and what silence produces. Okay, so that's the second thing. And finally, the third thing Jesus' silence does is that it gives the woman a voice. Jesus doesn't speak, so the woman can speak. It gives her a sense of agency. What do I mean by that? We have to understand that there's a clear power dynamic here. And Jesus knows. He's a male Jewish rabbi interacting with a Canaanite woman. He knows the ball in his court, and he knows he has all the power. So he has two choices. He can either dangle his healing power in front of her and do what many of us were taught to do um, about missions when we were growing up, right? The way many of us learned how to do missions was to go to a disadvantaged neighborhood, let them know, here we are, we have something you need, we're here to save you from your brokenness, and so like, you have to take what we're offering you, right? This is how a lot of us learned how to evangelize. And oftentimes, that method of evangelism left the neighborhoods more disempowered than when we, when we found them. These neighborhoods that we were supposed to help and to serve. But Jesus here refuses to interact with this woman in a way that exploits her weakness. He places the onus of the situation in her hands. And if you see it, by the end, her voice gets stronger and stronger and louder and louder. And she becomes so confident by the end, she's going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus. When Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, she says, yes, it is, Lord. 
She says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And to this, Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Notice Jesus doesn't say, go, my power has healed you. No, he says, your faith has healed your daughter. He credits her faith for the power of this healing. I think oftentimes we want God to say, do this, right? We say, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to live? Do this, go here, marry her, don't marry him. We want quick answers, not realizing that often God's silence is God's grace to us. God's grace to empower us and to give us a voice, to give us agency, to make decisions and take leaps of faith. It's how we mature as believers. The silence of God does not signal the absence of God. Usually it means God is up to something. Okay? Now, moving on. It's worth mentioning that the woman's response is just as surprising as Jesus' response. Okay? Remember, in the passage right before this, Jesus calls the religious leaders hypocrites, and they're offended. In this passage, Jesus calls this woman a dog, and she takes zero offense, okay? Doesn't mean we should all go out and call people dogs. Please don't do that, okay? But what happens is that this woman accepts Jesus' premise that she's unworthy to approach him. She doesn't come to Jesus entitled. She doesn't come to Jesus expecting him to oblige to her request, which is why even when Jesus says it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, she's not like, how could you, Jesus? That's not who you are. That's not how the Messiah is supposed to speak. No, she takes it. She who comes well aware of the fact that Jesus has zero obligation socially, culturally, or ritually to heal her daughter. She comes well aware of the fact that she's undeserving of his attention. But you see, this woman gets the gospel. Some commentators say she's the first person in the entire gospel of Matthew who gets the gospel. We think we understand the gospel if we have a seminary education and we've been going to church our whole lives. But what Jesus is showing us here by juxtaposing these two stories together is that sometimes those who feel like they know everything there is to know about God are furthest from his heart and those you would least expect to get it are the ones who actually do. Why were the Pharisees and scribes offended? Because they were standing on their own merits. They were coming to Jesus on the basis of their goodness. So when Jesus calls them hypocrites, they're like, excuse me? I serve in children's ministry every week. I'm a community group leader. I've watched all the Bible Project videos. How dare you? I'm offended. Because they're coming to Jesus on the basis of what they've done. But you see, this woman comes to Jesus not on the basis of her worthiness, she comes to Jesus on the basis of his. She's not coming because she's observed all the ceremonial laws and religious rituals, because she hasn't. She's not Jewish. She's not asking Jesus for help because she's good. She's asking Jesus for help because he's good. This is the gospel that whether you're sitting here and you've followed all the rules your entire life or you've broken all the rules your entire life, 
The gospel tells us that all fall short of the glory of God. We all miss the mark completely, and yet God still loves us. Because his love isn't contingent on our goodness, it's contingent on his. You know, I think it's so fitting, and I love how, like, masterful the gospel writers are with these kinds of things. I think it's so fitting that the very next story in Matthew 15 is the story of Jesus feeding the 4,000. We see the imagery of bread again. And whereas you have this Canaanite woman, and she's, like, content with the crumbs. She's like, I'll just take the crumbs, Jesus. Like, you know, and, and, and the implication there is that there's a limited supply of food, so, like, let me just have the crumbs, and in the very next story, Jesus shows us that everyone who's hungry gets fed. Everyone who wants gets. And in fact, everyone who wants gets fed, and there are still seven basketfuls of leftover. This is the love of God. It is abundant. It is overflowing. And there is nothing you can do to separate yourself from God's love. Now, this doesn't mean there isn't a cost to this love, because great love always comes at a cost. And that's why this scene is so powerful. You have to put yourself in this story, and you have to imagine Jesus is a Jew, right? And he's standing there in this moment, and I just, you know, in that silence, that silence is deafening. And I imagine he sees this Canaanite woman on her knees in front of him, and I mean, he's carrying generations of oppression and corruption faced by his people in his body. And Matthew wants us to understand the tension of this situation, how thick it is, the drama. And we wouldn't understand this if this were just a quick healing. You have to wonder what's going through Jesus' mind. Jesus grew up memorizing the Torah. He's read about all the wars, all the bloodshed that's happened between the Israelites and the Canaanites. And so now he has this Canaanite woman begging him to do something for her. Jesus has every reason to dismiss her, and yet he doesn't. Just like he doesn't dismiss us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, we read, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Even when we were dead, even when we had nothing to stand on, even when we were unclean, because of God's great love for us, you and I are saved. And the way Jesus saves us is not through a quick and easy transaction. In fact, he chooses the most excruciating method of saving us possible. He's nailed to a cross. And on the cross, Jesus becomes unclean. He takes upon his own body all the sins of humanity. He's cast out so that you and I would be welcomed in. And Jesus doesn't just give us crumbs. He gives us a seat at the table. This is the gospel, that Jesus was treated like a dog so that you and I would be treated like his children. You know, uh, growing up, my mom used to just watch me eat. And, like, this is like, you know, an Asian parent's, like, favorite pastime, watching their kids eat. And I never understood that until I became a parent myself. 
um, because there is nothing better than watching your kids eat the food you cook for them, right? And my kids like to eat, okay? Especially my son loves to eat. And there's nothing they need to do like to make me happy. All they have to do is eat. And the greatest feeling as a dad is when their plate is empty and they ask for more. It's not an inconvenience. You're like, all you need to do is ask and there's always more. And you want to give and give and give. And this is the love of God. It is abundant. It is overflowing. And so I want to say this. Whether you identify as a follower of Jesus or not, if you're sitting here and you feel unworthy to approach God, maybe you're carrying like guilt or shame, maybe you feel humiliation or you're feeling like a failure, like you've done something wrong, and, and underneath all of those questions usually lies the question, if I bring myself to God like this, will he receive me? And the answer is always yes. It's always yes. He always receives those who seek because we don't approach God on the basis of our goodness. We approach God on the basis of his. So my encouragement to you as we close, do not wait any longer. Just come as you are, broken, messy, with all your baggage, and receive. Don't stop seeking God because God will never stop seeking you. And there is nothing that warms the heart of God more than an empty plate and his children asking for more. That is who Jesus is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And God, I suspect that there are so many here wondering that if they were to um, bear all that they are, bear all that is in their souls, wondering if they are acceptable. Maybe they've tried that in the world. Maybe that they've tried that in the communities they're a part of. And maybe they've received a response that made them feel like they could not be who they were and still be accepted and still be called worthy and still be worthy of love. But thank you for this word that reminds us that when we feel most unworthy, that is the moment of your greatest acceptance. That is the moment we realize that you see us and know us deeply, and yet you still love us. And so help us to come acknowledging our need Help us to come desperately seeking you, knowing that you are always seeking us. We thank you for this encouragement. We thank you for this community. Help us to be a community of grace, compassion, and mercy, one that embodies this gospel, that embodies the radical love and acceptance of God. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.